0: Hello, I'm Michael Novogratz, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, June 30th, 2015. In our general news discussion today, I'll talk about the fiscal year 2016 funding bill approved by the Senate Appropriations Committee for Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development and related agencies. In particular, I'll tell you which affordable housing program could get slashed by more than $800 million. In our Low-Income Housing Tax Credit segment, I'll share what the Supreme Court's recent ruling on housing discrimination could mean for the affordable housing community. Then, I'll highlight a new report on the state of the nation's housing and how cuts to federal programs could be detrimental to low-income families. In New Markets Tax Credit news, I'll share an update on the status of legislation to make the New Markets Tax Credit a permanent part of the tax code. In our historic tax credit section, I have great news about three state historic tax credit programs. They include an extension and an expansion, plus a new provision in one state historic tax credit program that's good news for nonprofits. Then, in our Renewable Energy Tax Credit section, I'll talk about federal legislation that was introduced in both the House and the Senate last week that could make renewable energy more attractive to private investors. If you're ready, let's get started. Let's start off this week's general section with news from the fiscal year 2016 funding bill approved last Thursday by the Senate Appropriations Committee on Transportation, Housing, and Urban Development and Related Agencies, or THUD. The committee approved the funding bill by a vote of 20 to 10. Those voting in favor of the bill included all 16 Republicans plus four Democrats. The Democrats are Senators Barbara Mikulski of Maryland, Dianne Feinstein of California, Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, and Brian Schatz of Hawaii. The bill works within the sequestration framework of the Budget Control Act and makes nearly $55.7 billion available for t That amount is about $1.9 billion above the fiscal year 2015 or actual authorization, but $7 billion below the President's budget request. Now let's look at appropriations for the Department of Housing and Urban Development specifically the bill would provide $37.6 billion in net funding for HUD. That amount is nearly $2 billion above the enacted fiscal year 2015 level, but $3 billion less than what the President requested. It would provide $19.9 billion for the Housing Choice Voucher Program. That's a 3.3% increase from last year's enacted level, but 5.6% less than the requested amount. It fully funds project-based rental assistance at $10.8 billion. That's an 11.3% increase from the prior fiscal year 2015, and it's 0.6% above, that's right, 0.6% above the President's request. It would increase the cap on public housing rental assistance demonstration, or RAD conversions, from 185,000 units to 200,000 units. It would also permit up to 300 public housing agencies to participate in the Moving to Work demonstration program. That's up from the current limit of 39. However, as you probably have already heard through Twitter and other means, the subcommittees market bill severely cuts HUD's Home Investments Partnerships program. Home is currently the largest block grant to state and local governments designed exclusively to create low-income housing. The proposal would slash the program from its fiscal year 2015 funding level of $900 million to just $66 million in fiscal year 2016. That's right, from $900 million to $66 million. That's an $834 million cut. That's 93%. The proposed reductions to the HOME program and other affordable housing initiatives are due to the committee's prioritization of HUD's Rental and Homeless Assistance Programs as well as the tight non-defense discretionary budget caps imposed by the Budget Control Act. Affordable housing advocates are urging lawmakers to oppose the Senate T-Head Appropriations Bill and reverse the spending caps. Among them is the HOME Coalition which represents 35 national affordable housing organizations and trade associations, focused on supporting the home program. Last week, it urged others to write their senators to oppose the bill and the non-defense discretionary budget caps that led to home cuts. It is not clear if or when the full Senate will consider the Appropriations committee's approved fiscal year 2016 T-HUD bill. As I've mentioned in previous podcasts, it is possible that congressional leadership may decide to consider legislation to increase the budget caps, which would make it easier for the 2016 spending bills to pass the Senate and get signed by the President. Now, I want to make sure that you receive the latest in tax credit news, so go to www.novaco.com and subscribe to our Industry Alert emails, if you haven't done so already. And for further analysis of the senate Head fiscal year 2016 bill, please go to my blog at novagradic.wordpress.com. In affordable housing news, the Supreme Court last week finally issued its ruling in the Texas case concerning housing discrimination. The verdict? Discrimination doesn't need to be intentional to be against federal law. The 5-4 decision was authored by Justice Anthony Kennedy, who some thought would decide the other way. The decision allows complaints to be made under the Fair Housing Act based on disparate impact and I quote, disparate impact. Disparate impact is when a policy that appears to be neutral has a discriminatory effect on a protected class. The court decision actually only settles one specific issue. It says that disparate impact can be used in a fair housing complaint. Had the court ruled otherwise, petitions would have to have proven intent as well as damage. This case was based on a claim that Texas approved too many low-income housing tax credit properties in poor, mostly black, neighborhoods in Dallas, while largely keeping them out of wealthy, white neighborhoods. It was filed in 2008 and as one at each level before it was upheld by a federal appeals court in 2012. Justice Kennedy wrote that the court wasn't ruling out legitimate government policies when enacted by municipal housing authorities or private developers. He wrote that, and I quote, a disparate impact claim that relies on statistical disparity must fail if the plaintiff cannot point to a defendant's policy or policies causing that disparity, End quote. He also said that governmental or public policies aren't contrary to the disparate impact requirement unless they are, and I quote again, artificial, arbitrary, and unnecessary barriers. And he specifically said that the verdict does not impugn housing authorities, quote, race-neutral efforts to encourage revitalization of communities that have long suffered the harsh consequences of segregated housing patterns. This was the third time that housing advocates appealed a disparate impact housing case to the High Court. Both times previously the cases were withdrawn or settled before actually reaching the Supreme Court. The verdict was somewhat surprising. Many expected the Court's conservative majority to overturn the lower court decision but Justice Kennedy joined the courts for liberals on this issue. For those in the local housing tax credit world, the most direct effect will most likely be changes in some qualified allocation plans so they don't inadvertently place more local housing tax credit properties in lower-income areas. Many states already have taken those steps, often prioritizing developments that go into what are known as high-opportunity areas. You can read the case, at www.taxcredithousing.com, hover over LHTC and click on court rulings. It's called Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs versus the Inclusive Communities Project. If you have any questions about how the ruling could affect your housing developments, please contact one of my partners in a Novigradic office near you. For a full listing of our locations, go to www.novoco.com. In other news, the Joint Center for Housing Studies of Harvard University, released its annual State of the Nation's Housing Report last week. This annual report looks at the housing market, demographic trends, and challenges faced by American households. The report showed that the number of American homeowners continues to decline. Last year was the eighth straight year that the number of homeowners decreased. Now, the flip side is that the past 10 years were the strongest decade of renter growth since the late 1980s. Multifamily housing construction has been particularly strong, with 1.2 million apartments being added since 2010, however the rental market continues to tighten, with the lowest national vacancy rate in nearly 20 years. That led to rent increases that are faster than the rate of inflation, and those rent increases mean tougher times for many low-income renters. The study showed that the percentage of U.S. rental households paying more than 30% of income for housing remained near record highs. Paying 30% or more for housing, which the study called cost-burdened, also spread to renters with higher incomes. For instance, about one in five renter households earning between $45,000 and $75,000 are cost-burdened. The report pointed out that being cost-burdened often forces people to cut back on other items, such as health care, food, and other critical expenses. The report warns that cuts to federal programs, such as HUD's Home Program, will make the rental housing crunch more difficult. Especially when those cuts are combined with the fact that the affordable housing periods of more than two million assisted housing units are set to expire over the next decade. The report emphasized that the Long income Housing Tax Credit is under increased pressure because of those issues. It highlighted that the long housing tax credit program remains the primary support for the construction and preservation of affordable rentals. The report also spotlighted efforts to expand the loan housing tax credit program to deal with the lack of affordable housing. And it pointed out that the capitalization of the National Housing Trust Fund would be an important step in helping address affordable housing challenges. To learn more about the report, visit the Joint Center for Housing Studies website. The report is called State of the Nation's Housing 2015. In New Markets Task Force News, I have an update on legislation we've been monitoring over the past few months. It's legislation that would permanently extend the federal New Market Tax Credit, which expired, as you know, at the end of last year. Now, companion versions of the New Markets Tax Credit Extension Act of 2015 were introduced in February in the House and the Senate. In addition to making the program permanent, the bills would also set an annual inflation adjustment for the allocation amount. This annual inflation adjustment would help return the credit to its value and keep the value going forward. If the bill is enacted this year, Nova Grant and Company estimates that about $4.8 billion in allocation authority would be available, as opposed to the current $3.5 billion authorized level, or at least the expired authorized level. The legislation would also allow the New Market Tax Credit to be taken against the Alternative Minimum Tax, or AMT, liability. That move would put the New Market Tax Credit on a more level playing field with other tax credits, such as the loan Income Tax Credit and the Historic Tax Credit. Since our last update at the end of May, seven co-sponsors have signed on in support of the House bill. There are four new Democrats, Barbara Lee of California, Robert Brady of Pennsylvania, Kathy Castor from Florida, and Tony Cardenas from California. There are also three new Republican co-sponsors. There are Sean Duffy from Wisconsin, Ryan Costello from Pennsylvania, and Bill Johnson from Ohio. This brings the total number of co-sponsors for the House bill to 53 at the time of this recording. There are 34 Democrat co sponsors and 19 Republican co sponsors. And since our last update, the Senate version of the bill remains with six co sponsors. To read more about the New Market Tax Credit Extension Act of 2015, go to www.newmarketscredits.com. The House version is H.R. 855 and the Senate version is S. 591. In our historic tax credit section, I have three state level updates. First, Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal signed a bill into law this month, a bill that extends the state historic tax credit program by four years. The sunset date was previously January 1, 2018, and the bill pushes it back to January 1, 2022. The bill provides a 25% credit for eligible costs and rehab expenditures incurred before January 1, 2018, a lower 20% credit will be available for eligible costs incurred after that date. One thing I should note, the law includes a provision that does not allow a credit for costs paid for with state or local funds, unless those funds are reported as taxable income or structured as repayable loans. It'll be interesting to see how various tax attorneys interpret this language. The program extension is a notable victory for historic preservation advocates in Louisiana. The text of louisiana bill HB 387 is available at www.historictaxcredits.com. And if you have any specific questions about this extension, please contact Michael Kressig in our St. Louis, Missouri office. My second state-level update is on the new expanded state historic tax credit that goes into effect Wednesday in Colorado. The law, which was signed in May by Governor John Hickenlooper, expands the state's original store tax credit, which has been around since 1990. It offers a higher credit on expenditures, a higher per-project cap, and greater flexibility. The original credit, which was one of the first state-level store tax credits, remains available for use after the new credit hits its annual cap. So, Colorado now has two state store tax credit programs. The new state credit for commercial properties is 25% for the first $2 million in a development's qualified expenditures and 20% thereafter. There's also a 5% bonus for properties in a county that has been declared a federal or state disaster area. Now, there is a $1 million cap per project, per property, per year. The 1990 Colorado store tax credit is for 20% of expenditures with a credit limit of $50,000 over the lifetime of the property. The new credit is available to tenants of commercial properties who have a lease of at least 39.5 years and to taxpayers of a purchase agreement or an option to purchase an historic property. And the new credits can also be sold to other taxpayers without penalty. While the per-project cap is significantly higher on the new credit, there's also now a statewide program cap each year. It starts at $2.5 million this year and then goes to $5 million for each of the next three years. When that cap is exhausted, no further credits are allowed. That's when Colorado taxpayers would most likely opt to take the 1990 credit. Both the 1990 and the 2014 historic tax credit in Colorado expired December 31, 2019. For more information about Colorado or other state historic tax credits, and also the federal historic tax credit, feel free to contact my partner, Tom Bosha in our Cleveland, Ohio office. My third state-level update will come as great news for Texas nonprofits and Texas developers. Texas Governor Greg Abbott recently signed into law a bill that amends the determination of eligible costs and expenses for purposes of the State Historic Tax Credit in Texas, or HTC. Previously, Texas law simply said that eligible costs and expenses for purposes of the State Historic Tax Credit are qualified rehabilitations as defined by Section 47 of the Internal Revenue Code. The Texas law had no provision that expressly limited the tax credit to only taxable entities. And the Texas Attorney General issued an opinion last year that tax-exempt entities could still benefit from the state credit by assigning the credit to a taxable entity. The recently signed bill makes it law. The law now specifically states that the depreciation and tax-exempt use provisions of Section 47 do not apply to entities exempt from the state franchise tax and those costs and expenses are still eligible for the state credit if other provisions of the Internal Revenue Code are satisfied. In other words, the bill amends the Texas Tax Code by specifically exempting non-taxable entities from the narrower federal rules. Advocates of the bill say it will increase funds available to nonprofits as they preserve endangered historic places across Texas. H.R. 3230 takes effect January 1, 2016. If you want to read the bill, go to www.historictaxcredits.com. If you have further questions, contact my partner George Littlejohn in our Austin, Texas office. In Renewable Energy Tax Credit News, federal lawmakers last week introduced a bill that supporters say would level the playing field for renewable energy technology. Senators Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware, and Jerry Moran, a Republican from Kansas, reintroduced the Master Limited Partnerships MLPs Parity Act. If enacted, the bill would allow renewable energy investors to form MLPs, a publicly traded business structure that combines the funding advantages of corporations with the tax advantages of partnerships. This generally allows investors to move in and out of MLPs more readily. Another benefit of the structure is that MLPs can access capital at a lower cost and the capital is more liquid than traditional financing. This makes MLPs effective at attracting private investment dollars. Under current law, the MLP structure is available only to investors in fossil fuel-based energy projects. Meanwhile, similar legislation to allow renewable energy MLPs was introduced in the House. That bill is spearheaded by Representatives Ted Poe, a Republican of Texas, and Mike Thompson, a Democrat from California. Previous versions of the legislation were introduced in the 112th and the 113th Congresses. This year's Master Limited Partnership Parity Act is Senate Bill 1656 and House Bill 2883. We've posted copies of both bills for you at www.energytaxcredits.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Milagradic. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogradick and Company LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogradick and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.